Welcome to By the River. I sat down to talk with Jared Moss. Jared is a renowned bird dog trainer and breeder of German short-haired pointers, and he brings his rigorous and crafted method with him into the hound world. I bought Moxie, my first hound pup, from Jared three years ago, and for me, she's perfect. At home, Moxie is well-mannered and fun. She handles like a BMW, and in the mountains she's a blur of nose and legs and hunt that never stops. I weighed her last night at 30 pounds, and she does just as much hunting as a dog three times her size. In the interview, we talk about how I have been a limiting factor in Moxie's development. Despite my mistakes, I'm chuffed with Moxie's growth, from hip-hugging pup to catching her first dirt lion solo last month. Until recently, Moxie was my only hound, and we learnt together through trial and error, and lots of miles in the mountains. So thank you, Jared, for your thoughtful breeding and your advice along the way. After the interview, I share my thoughts on habitat loss as it relates to our relationship with nature. Nice, man. We're live, huh? Yeah. Okay. Thanks for driving down. <laughs> no, thanks for seeing me, man. I appreciate it. Uh, how's your season going? Uh, what have you been up to? Tell the DU audience who's been missing you. DU audience. <laughs> yeah, I've I've been just hunting a lot, uh, training bird dogs all summer. You and I were talking a little bit about that, and then actually was hunting today, found a track way late in the day, turned out on it, and it was going into a spot that you don't really want to go into in the dark, and so... I was able to tone the dogs back and just got back into town. Well, what do you think the balance of how much can you tone a dog off without starting to, is a finished dog just set? Like that, when you, what do you, what you consider a finished dog, that dog is not, you're not going to ruin it by toning it off a couple yeah. of bears or lions going into nasty places. Right. And a lot of it's just how you train too. If you teach them that tone, isn't necessarily a negative thing it's just hey it's time to go home we're going home then it's not like they're not associating game that they're chasing like today a lion and oh crap i'm in the wrong you know i was a negative mm -hmm. and i had a couple of dogs that are like one and a half and when they came back to the truck today you know i was just petting them up telling them they did a good job i was still jacking them up a little bit because mm -hmm. i wanted them to realize exactly what you're saying that they were up there doing their job they were doing the right thing but I'm the, I made a call. I said, hey, let's go home. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't necessarily they were doing something bad. So how how would you differentiate that in training when you're trying to break off off game? Uh, would you not use a tone? Correct. I, I, a, lot of, a lot of the stuff I will tone when they're young. So I've got some seven-month-old pups we're working right now. And we'll tone train them. That means recall. That means come to me. And then I'll use stimulus if we're trash breaking. So if it's a deer or a rabbit or something, I'll just hit like a three or four pretty low. So not – and then, you know, you get a five-year-old dog or a four-year-old dog that's had a lot of experience, been in a lot of different situations, and you don't even have to shock them. You can tone them and tell them because they know. They know at that point, oh, we're not supposed to chase that elk or whatever or mm -hmm. whatever it is that you're correcting. So, you, so in the first couple of years, you keep the tone and the – shock or vibrate separate, separate yeah and you associate that tone with positive recall Ta training yeah, and stuff yep, like just that just positive recall yeah okay wow very good i 
that's that uh, thing has saved my marriage. So <laughs> <laughs> it's been a positive to be able to start a track late in the day, and then still get home for whatever you need to get home for. So without having to worry about giving the young dogs mixed messages. Correct, and not and not yeah, not taking the drive out of your dogs either. Mm-hmm. So, yep, just been. Just getting into lion season and wrapping up bears. We did bears this fall. Killed a couple of nice bears up here on the beaver. Mm-hmm. A lot of fun. Were you outfitting? Yep. Yep. There's a, a little small outfit that's just starting here in town. Um, Martin Hunting is the name of their outfit. They're just, man, they're only into it eight months or so. Mm-hmm. But really good guys. Good how people. How does hunt it, hard. How does it compare when you're working for an outfitter? versus just hunting on your own do you act differently with the dogs do you do you hunt differently um no i think every all the interactions with the dogs are about the same maybe like today instead of starting the track with two or three mature adult finished dogs i just took all seven of them and just said go for it you know mm-hmm. and i had a little three-month-old puppy there that just ran around and didn't know what was going on but yeah i i think maybe on the training scenario sometimes you'll start a track with a young dog that needs that experience but when you're outfitting and somebody's paid you to do a job then you start that track with your your best hound your starting dogs Mm -hmm. that way you don't have any hopefully no train wrecks later on in the you don't end up chasing the wrong animal yeah we turned loose on a bobcat yesterday and my friend has two you know a couple good dogs we Right on. Turned out the older ones, and then we just dumped the box and threw a couple young dogs in, and right. they probably goofed it up a little bit more than usual. But right. you know, we're just out there for fun. We're not exactly. Yeah. And and if you're training, you might try a little older track, whereas if you're guiding, you're looking for something you know you can catch that day. You know, instead of wasting the client's time. Mm-hmm. So. Do you have a hard and fast rule when you take clients out? Uh, as to what they're allowed or not allowed to kill, do you specify that beforehand? Yeah, I think I think the the longer I'm in the game, yeah, I try to be. And most of the guys that get in the truck are wanting a mature tom or a mature animal at least. You know, they don't want to kill some small little thing. A lot of the guys are from back east; they're paying good money to come out here, and so there's a few that we've sent home without. You know, they've seen lions. They saw a small lion or they saw a female and they decided to pass, and I'm totally okay with that. I think that's awesome. I think right now on in the Utah, they're trying to get rid of the lions, so there's a lot. Of, I mean, like this unit right here above my house was limited entry up until two years ago. Hmm. Now it's an open, unlimited unit, so it's 30-plus cats came off of this unit last year. That's that's a lot. I've, I've heard that from a number of people that Utah – what is it, Utah Fishing Game? Is that what they're called here? Yeah, tr- yeah, the Division Wildlife. Is that they're really opening it up. Yeah, and it's a double-edged sword. It's a hard conversation. You know, I checked a lot of lines last year with the uh, the biologist, um, Mike Wardle, just up here. He lives back by Fillmore, mm-hmm. 45 minutes north of here. So I got a lot of good conversations with him. Some of the, you know, like the deer population – once it gets so low, if we don't bring the predators down, there really is no chance for them to to come back. And that's where we're at in some of the units. With deer, yeah. Although it sounds like, the little from the little I know about Utah, that possibly the reason the deer are low is because 
there's well a couple bad winners but also yeah. human take is quite high and there's a lot of people here applying for tags and there's just a lot of demand for, for yeah it's just a lot of mismanagement the last 20 years of mismanagement finally caught up to the division well really? right that's that's my own personal opinion yeah uh, it's not just the predators it's you know you have this particular unit we gained elk and the elk herd went really well the deer herd kind of fell off and they were okay with that and now the elk herd is is being curved back down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. There's there's more it, there's more pieces in the puzzle than just predator management. Yeah, wiping off all the predators, probably not going to deer still aren't going to come back. So I don't know. That's my personal answer. Yeah, but that's there's no there's no science back behind that. Just me boots on the ground. I mean, for a long time. Science is the accumulation of a data set, right? And every time you're out, that's the points on your data set. Yeah. Uh, when I, sp- I spoke to a lion biologist at Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, and he was saying that although lion predation has some role in deer population, it's not one of the main uh, right. deer and elk. It's not one of the main factors. And the primary threat right now is habitat loss and poor habitat. Poor and habitat. so if we've overgrazed, if we're building into where the deer live, that's going to have a much bigger – and winters are obviously huge, but sure. there's not really much that we can do about winters. Uh if we're building into wintering ground and stuff like that, that's going to have a much bigger impact on the deer populations than, you know, lion predation. Yeah. They've done some studies here in Utah, and they have collared the deer, and it's pretty neat. They're doing some really neat studies to figure out why, but those studies are only three or four years old, Mm -hmm. five. So still got a lot of ways to go to figure out why. But habitat, I think, is a huge, huge part of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. Yep. What in the last 20 years, where where do you see the mismanagement? Um, probably number of number of mule deer taken, number of buck deer taken, uh, number of overall tags. If a unit is suffering to that extent, maybe they should just stop hunting altogether, right? Mm-hmm. It, I don't know. Um, I think that's probably the largest scenario, not being able to to regulate hunting numbers i think that's probably the mismanagement the largest one mm-hmm. and when you talk about sort of their opening up the lion season who is it do you think that's pushing i i think there's always many sides to something and there there is a side advocating for the opening up of lion hunting and it's usually not houndsmen yeah uh, who is it who's sort of lobbying for uh, a decrease in lion numbers through harvest that's a good question i i couldn't pinpoint exactly one person i just know that at the rack meetings that we have here in the state that that those that's where those topics come up those discussions happen and the division is just you know trying to use their science and their data to explain why they're doing it um one i think one really neat thing is uh that the utah houndsman in the last four years have actually started a lion study i think mm-hmm. about four or five years ago and they've collared some lions, and they're starting to work with the division. And that's creating a relationship. Even just recently, some bear topics came up, and the division finally turned to the hounds and said, what do you guys think? And they took their opinion as, um, you know, it carried a lot of weight mm-hmm. and it actually helped them form some policies and stop some things and change some things. Whereas four or five years ago, the houndsmen didn't have that relationship with the Division of Wildlife. Mm-hmm. And so they wouldn't even... They wouldn't even ask. They just kind of tell them how it's going to be. And 
So where the where the division's working with the, the houndsman and the houndsman's working with the division, people are starting to form relationships. You work with a guy for three or four years and you call her 20 lions or 30 lions, whatever they've done. Um, that's a huge gain for both for both sides of the parties, mm-hmm. division and and uh, and the houndsman. Yeah, I've I've heard some people talk about sort of corporate capture of the state agencies, and I think you hear enough people talk about it, and and it's got to be sort of subtly true. It's not it's not Exxon Mobil buying off Vision Game or something, right. but uh, and in fact, it's a, it's an area in which I think houndsmen and the anti hunters, the animal rights people, are sort of u- sort of unified in that the anti the anti hunting people are convinced that you know Idaho Fish and Game is sold out to the hunting lobby. I think that's sort of ludicrous, but right. but I there may, there may be an element of doing our own studies and putting that those statistics out there because whether they're doing studies with an agenda or the scientists are making good science but the sort of heads at the top of these fish and game agencies are disregarding the science i think it's always good for us to have more information and have some information that we collect and yeah yeah i i you know there's been some there's been a few canyons that we hunted in this last four years, and the and the Utah Utah is trying to put that together too. They've they're finding that in one specific long drainage, um, they had like five or six lions that were all kind of living in there mutually, whereas before that we all believed that you know you had one or two lions in an area, and they wouldn't commingle or allow that to happen and. So there's some interesting things coming out. I mean, oh, yeah. that one canyon held multiple lines, and that's pretty neat to see. Kind of changes your perspective. I think toms are still ranged big and different. It's interesting. The uh, the gentleman that was just here we were talking to um, was hunting out here on the West Desert, and you know the the lion that he was after a couple of days ago was like he covered over 18 miles just to just to catch up to him, mm-hmm. and the lions over here on the east side don't seem to travel quite as much as really? that. So it's interesting. It's mm-hmm. it's interesting to see different um, same species interacting in their geographical areas in a completely different way. Pretty cool. Do you think that line was just moving out, changing territory? Yeah, for some reason out there, it feels like they just travel. They're just mm-hmm. they're on a mission, you know. Mm-hmm. And maybe it. Maybe it's a little less game on, you know, on the east side over here. There's a little more game, so there's more opportunity to slow down and hunt. I don't know the rhyme or reason to it all the time. But. Yeah, it's amazing how we can make really accurate generalizations about animals, and they and it is true, but then they're also so unique, and they're constantly upsetting the things we expect of them. Right. There's a lot of – I think lion science is sort of the cutting edge because they're so secretive that it's been hard to study them, and now we've got right. GPS collars and trail cams. Yeah. Have you seen any of this stuff in Patagonia? There's these, you know, lions living socially in in groups like African lions. It's really? crazy. Just things that you'd think are is completely out of the nature of a lion. But really? uh, yeah, yeah, I haven't seen that. That's pretty neat. Oh, I'll show you some videos. That's pretty cool. That is cool. It's weird though because sort of it goes against all of our preconceived notions about at least all the instances of how I've seen them behave up here. At least. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> crazy to think. I guess the more we learn about them, the more we realize we don't know quite quite what we thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So on the subject of, this is something I, I've asked a few people just because I think it's sort of a contentious subject and also something that I'm, I'm thinking about, I, especially in a place with Utah. Utah seems to be the, like, uh, the focal point for a lot of hound questions because it's a state where we've still got hound hunting and yeah. there's heaps of hound hunters here, but it's dealing with an increased population, increased urban development, uh, I'm sure you're getting the political stuff too. I, I don't follow that closely. But do you think that guided predator hunting is sustainable as far as the population goes? Like like uh, a guided lion hunt, for example? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a really good question. I And I've even had talked to some other guides here on, on the beaver unit in regards to elk. It's a limited entry unit. It takes... 15 to 20 years to draw it. Um, I was talking to the biologist last last winter about the elk herd. And the way he broke it down for me was like, you know, this unit's uh, objective is to hold 1,100 elk. It got up to 3,000, and we had to bring it back down to 1,100. We had a bunch of cow hunts. And so right now there's a kind of a huge ratio of bulls to cows on this particular unit. And the guides are telling me, hey, the next three to five years are going to be really good. And then that, that herd's going to finally, it's finally going to catch up to them, right? And we're not going to be able to have, you know, eight or 12 bulls in the 370 to 400 range on the unit. They're just not going to be there because there's not that many elk. So compare that to lions, I think it's the same thing. You know, you start taking these units that were limited entry and very selective. Guys put in for six, eight years draw a tag or they outfit with somebody on a very selective unit and they're after a big tom they're after that that trophy animal is it sustainable then i think absolutely mm -hmm. if you go start taking 30 40 lions off of a unit probably not very long mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> i i i joke with my buddies but i say we're you know we're not going to have any lions to hunt next year and we find some but not not the same caliber mm-hmm yeah, it struck me. I was thinking. I was thinking along those lines. Sort of, the, a a guide or outfitter is in some ways the most invested because not only does their love for the sport and for catching, right. uh, but also their all you know their their whole life, their income, uh, and so it's in their interest to preserve the lion population. Absolutely. Who who is it? Who doesn't mind if they kill off a local lion population? Is an is an outfitter or a guide who is not rooted in that place. You know, you don't have to be living in Beaver, but you, you have to consider that the future of your life hunting will be partially here. And I, I think that the, the it may be that the guides and outfitters who are sort of all over the place, they're hunting the whole West. Right. They have less incentive to protect, you know, local populations of lions. I agree. Yeah, I think you're right on. So hopefully we can keep the lions, not kill them all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm biased. It's kind of hard to cha train any hound dogs if you don't have a track. So. Yeah. No, definitely. Uh, I I, you have a much better perspective because you've both guided and you hunt. You know, for your life. For fun. Yeah. Uh, you you go out with, you know, it's very easy for me to see, be critical of guides and outfitters, and I go out with guys, and I only hunt with non-guides and outfitters and right. they go oh the guides and outfitters are killing off all the lions and bobcats and i do value my friend's opinion so i think that's probably sure. partially true in some instances 
and partially it's you know one side of the equation yeah i think um the more you understand the outfitting side you start seeing the the time put in the hours you know it's it's um it's a double-edged sword Mm. you know you guide full-time for a while and you realize holy cow we worked four or five days two or three guys to cut all these different roads and did all this stuff to find that one mature lion you know there's a lot of work and hours a lot i mean you go to bed at midnight get up at two (laughs) (laughs) you ride a snowmobile until it's out of gas and you fill it back up and you go again and so yeah it's get it gets harder and harder to find those top quality animals um yeah and there's different guides out there there's different outfitters out there like you said that have different objectives Mm -hmm. you know i this the outfit that we're working for right now they really want to do tom only and they only want to do mature toms you know that means they're going to have to go hunt different units because there's only going to be so many mature animals on one unit yeah no that's that's another good side of it is that if they're ethically motivated they could be traveling and not sort of rooted locally in it could be the guy who's most rooted locally who doesn't leave his county who kills everything in the county because that's what he's got to do it's a good point i guess there's no hard and fast rule you can apply is sort of there's many different ways to do it but if they've got sort of ethics and environment in mind though i i do think that it would probably be key to the future of the sport and and to outfitting it for predators that there be a sort of consciousness of sustainable harvest and and some guys are doing it awesome i i do not want to give the impression that they are definitely the hardest hunting badass hound hunters you know and it's obviously not lucrative because you go and it's not they've got (laughs) huge huge costs you know trucks snowmobiles dogs but they're doing it for the love of the thing and right it's cool to look at because they're sort of the michael jordans of the sport you know they they produce the best dogs and they are very good hunters yeah there's a lot of a lot that goes into it trying to read that dog's body language or trying to read what he's thinking and trying to understand what he's thinking and that good bad or otherwise has helped me a little has helped me in my life interacting with people i i can read a room pretty quick Mm -hmm. i can read people pretty well through their body language um sometimes the things they say and the way they move and act don't uh don't don't jive and so you're like yeah i don't know if you're really telling me the truth right now or or you're really that passionate about that subject but um i'm a pretty calm and quiet guy i mean i i get i I love to do the podcast because i think it's an opportunity for people to learn i learn a lot through podcasts um, by myself all the time and i'm throwing a podcast in and listening it's a good way to connect but outside of that man i'm pretty much doing my thing with my dogs and all, all the th- everything we teach is non-verbal and so that's the basis of everything so it's a lot of its body language a lot of its quiet um calm communication mm-hmm. so i don't know if some people would call me quiet and reserved and kind of shy but it's an uncomfortable feeling when you're reading someone's body language and it's saying one thing but they're verbally saying another and it it sort of gives you that exactly. chills. You're like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if I believe what you're saying right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh. I think it's, uh, Ed, I think raising a bunch of dogs um, w- has helped in some way with my kids because I'm a little more patient. I'm a little more like, yeah, you're still trying to figure that out. 
I need to be a little more. Obviously, I'm a, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes, and I yell at my kids just like every other guy. But I think there's times when I'm like, yeah, okay, this is not that I want to compare my do- my kids or my children to a dog, but they are progressively learning, and they are maturing, and it's like, yeah, you just didn't. You don't really understand where you're at, and so I'll maybe afford them a little more patience, mm. a little more grace. Yeah, and giving time for them to sort of do the wrong thing or figure out the right thing. I think it's something that with dogs we aim to do, and sometimes I I think that when I'm honest with myself, and I imagine when most dog people are honest with themselves, they've made very few good training moves or you know like interactions with the dog out of negative emotion. When you when you act and you're filled with anger, frustration, right. I in hindsight I always am disappointed in myself, and yeah. I'd like to get to a point. I think dogs have helped me as a person become better, and I'd like to get a point so yeah. that when I have kids, I can I can be that more, you know, give them the space and and not be so quick with them. Right. And the dogs tell you really quick. I mean, the minute you raise your voice or the minute your body language starts saying. I'm pissed off, you know, the way you're walking, the way you're moving, they automatically reflect that back to you. They're just start to, they give you that look or they hunch down a little bit or they cower or they start to slide away. So you get instant feedback from a dog um, on how you're acting. And so that, you know, not always do you get that with humans. Sometimes they're, they want to stand there and bite you face to face, you know, mm. and, you know, your kid's bad at you and he's telling you to pound sand and you're getting mad and, so, yeah, I think the dogs, a lot of good dog people are really, uh, that I that I am familiar with, are very patient, calm. They seem to be calm. They seem to have a, a calm energy. Um, we do get in verbal mode when we're with humans a lot. Yeah. And I see people bring that to dogs. And they over your voice is a useful tool, but they overuse it, and the dog sort of becomes insensitive to the voice. Exactly. Uh, When you there's when I pick up a dog and it's got you know it's like you call its name and it doesn't even turn its head. (laughs) It's like oh okay, something's been overused here. Right. Yeah, that happens a lot in the bird dog world. It's like I can't get my dog to do, you know, I can't get him to heal, for example, and it's like well, you know. The way that you taught him what heal meant probably meant that he should walk in this vicinity somewhere around you kind of close and half-heartedly listen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> probably because you taught him not very well. Mm. That's what it ends up being. And so a lot of the times we just, you know, uh, Dave Walker was one of my mentors. He was up there in Idaho. And um first chapter in his book says grab the duct tape and put it on your mouth. That's the very first thing he says cuz we we are. They dogs don't know, you know, if you could teach a dog to heal without opening your mouth and just use a check cord and teach him he they they're very sensitive and they understand what touch is and they read touch and they feel it and they read body language and they go, "Oh, okay, they're if it's a dog that's wanting to please you, one that's not, you know, occasionally there's a dog out there that just says that doesn't care what you do, but not very often. Most dogs are pretty, int- they're intuitive. They want to please you, especially if you've had them since they're a pup and you've played with them and fed them and taught them and, and created a bond with them. Then they're just looking t- for direction. Mm-hmm. So, I've, uh, a couple times I've done a week or two 
as an exercise, just not making any sort of verbal cue for the dogs. And I found it really useful, and I really encourage anyone who's interested That's to give it a shot. That's sort of great what, idea. what you're saying, you know, strap the duct tape over. Because you learn a lot about yourself, you know, how much you can communicate with them without using any verbal commands. Right. Uh, and, and, and what they're saying when they're looking to you, you know, it just helps you switch your eyes on to another level. Definitely. 100%. Yeah, a lot of a lot of that, and then you're also being really intent on the dog's body language, because you're like you might be pointing to him, hey, go lay down, and you're waiting to look at him to see if he's understanding what you're, you know, if he's responding or if he's just sitting there looking at you like I don't get it. So, yeah, it's it's a good, it's very effective. It's fun. It's fun to have a dog that's trained. You open the dog box and he just. You come out of the house, you you know, and you kind of have your routines. And, man, when you open the dog or you drop the tailgate, they just know, hey, we're going. Let's go hunting. And it's fun. It's fun when you get a dog to that stage where you don't have to say a lot. They kind of just know what, what the routine is. And they're uh, a lot easier to handle, a lot mm-hmm. easier to be around. Mm-hmm. A lot of fun. Yesterday I was at a tree, a bobcat tree, and it took us probably – two and a half hours to get to the tree and so these dogs are you know they they tree well they're not they're not overly owner dependent mine is but (laughs) his are fine yeah and we get to the uh and we get to the tree and i notice that uh the dogs are going off on the tree they're barking they're jumping up on you know they're looking at the cat and then every once in a while they look back at the owner and they're checking in and, and they're doing this you know for themselves and they've got to drive to hunt but also for him and they're very cognizant of what he you know the way he is absorbing the situation and when when it was time to go we barely called him you know just started walking away and they're just reading that situation and it's very very cool yeah it's neat when you see a a houndsman turn and walk away and say let's go or we're done or whatever that is and all of a sudden the dog's just right behind him yep yeah you know that there's been a lot of hours and at the end of that gentleman has a really good bond with his dogs. They respect him, you know. Yeah, that, that, and that's, I think, the only way is sort of time in and a balanced. If you, I, I, don't, I don't have kids, but I don't want to be reductive and reduce kids to the level of dogs. But with myself and with other people, I experience that we are so much like dogs, just the balance of our positive and negative experiences. Sure. And... We've got a hell of a lot more experiences than a dog because we live longer, we perceive right. a lot. But if you if you make that balance of experiences for your dog with you, overall negative, like no wonder that dog's running away from you when you're trying to load it up in the box. Right. You know? Yeah. No wonder as soon yeah as soon as he gets an opportunity to take off or or you know go do what he wants to do and instead of what you're after, he's going to take that opportunity. Yeah, I think even if you even if you are purely into it for the hunting and not for the dogs, yeah. it's still a useful tool to use posi- sort of a positive relationship with the dog because right. you're going to want that. E- even if you don't care about the dog, you're going to want that dog to care about you. Sure, sure. I've been around one or two guys that that the dogs were a complete tool. They didn't care, you know. They they just didn't. They just didn't. And that's hard. Those aren't the kind of guys that you want to gravitate. I don't gravitate to those kind of houndsmen. What were those it, dogs like? Yeah. So what was that the like? The dog. Yeah. It was. It was just like they knew that they knew their job and they did their job great. But it wasn't like 
Um, one of my best dogs, I know that little bugger would run for me because he loved when I got to the tree and he loved that praise. And he'd almost look to me like you were saying those, your, your buddy's dogs yesterday, like he'd tree hard. And then after a second, he'd look over and be like, is this what you want? And you'd be like, yeah, get him. And he'd be like, and then he just, he would go to another level, you know, mm-hmm. just ran all, gave everything he had because he wanted to please you. Mm-hmm. And I, and being around those other hounds and like that, it's completely opposite. Mm-hmm. They don't care. The dogs, the dogs cower, the dogs, you know, it's like get in and you better get in. Cause if you don't get in, you're going to get your butt kicked. Yeah. It was just a different, a whole different vibe. Um, but, you know, and and the level of control isn't there. You know, it's like you better you better be on a track and you better you better cut those dogs going the right way because you're not turning around or you're not you're not toning those dogs off of a track. Mm-hmm. You, you cut them. You're going to go go find them. Mm-hmm. So. And and I, they'll still hunt because oh. it, it, half of the equation is that the dog has a huge desire to hunt. But yes. I'd like to think that the dog if you add in the other whatever percentages is of the dog's natural drive to hunt and it's also drive to fulfill your needs right. uh, and desire to please you that that I'd like to think that that dog's going to hunt harder but I don't have experience yeah and and I don't know that that's 100% truth but it, it sure is for me I I I enjoy those kind of dogs mm-hmm. they get along a lot better mm-hmm. with with my personality and with my family mm-hmm. you know my little girl loves to go hound hunting with me. She loves to tell the dogs to get up and load up and go bear hunting and ride in the ranger. And heck, she's got two or three that listen to her better than me. So it's just, you know, but but she feeds them and she loves on them. And when they were puppies, she would play with them. And so creates that bond. And mm-hmm. It's fun to watch. How cool is that? Like, wh- I think... You, we all remember like the first dog we had as a child and teenager. Yeah. The dog, that dog that you had the relationship with, and it listened to you. And what a remarkable thing it is, f- when for a child, where no one looks, no adult looks to a child. You know, uh, children look to adults, but that child gets to feel a little bit of what that's like when the dog looks to them to be taken care of and right. for direction. And th- that's yeah. a, cr- that's a really empowering feeling as a child. Yeah, yeah, she's. She knows them by name. She can tell them what to do. It's fun. It's mm-hmm. a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. How much training do you think a hound dog needs? This sort of touches to. Yeah. What we're I, I, and I've talked about this in, in some of the past podcasts. You know, some of the first hounds that I raised, I probably put too good of a handle on them because they were too dependent on me. They didn't want to range far enough and get out and go. Um, so there's it's a balancing act. You know, you, you don't want to. You don't want to have a dog that won't leave your feet, um, but I enjoy a dog that gets in the truck or comes home or does, you know, gets, if I tell him to get out of something, he immediately just leaves it alone. Um, I remember some of the first times I went hound hunting, and I didn't have hounds, and those guys that had their dogs was like, make sure you keep the dog box closed and the tailgate up, because if that dog gets out, we're going to spend all day chasing him, trying to catch him. And to me, I was I was like, wow, that's 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 odd, you know. How mm-hmm. how does that work? And so those guys, the the dogs have been trained to catch and tree and trail, but as far as recall or load up or any type of um, you know a cease command, 
the dogs simply didn't have it, nor did they look to the owner for it. Mm. They didn't. It was it was like we're gone. Come find us. <laughs> yeah, it, I, maybe I'm not a hardcore enough hunter, but for me, like it's it's I, I want a dog that handles uh, for, for many reasons. Uh, I picked. A, I'm moving a dog for a friend right now, and I picked up. I picked this dog up uh, four days ago, and. I don't know if it knows its name. It's probably about a year old and really hasn't been off a chain. Right. And uh, it, it w- when I first picked it up, he's like, don't let this dog off the leash because you won't see it again. And even just in the past couple days of feeding it, using its name, like it's great. It's remarkable to me how quickly you can begin to lay those foundations. And now right. today, just before I had him out on a dirt road, just took him for a walk uh, and – you know, I still put a collar on her because she started running trash right. and she's going to take <laughs> off. But uh, she's looking to me. She's hearing her name. Right. You know, she, just giving her that little bit of affection and also yep. discipline, like, is beginning to, to snap things in. And I, it's exhausting to deal with a dog which doesn't have that handle. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not much fun. And especially in my scenario where you're working lots of dogs, you know, for other people, uh, it, it gets it gets exhausting to have a dog that you can't even have off leash, you know. Do you get bird dogs like that? Cause oh, yeah. A lot of the bird dogs I get, their manners are horrible. Because mm. they've just, they a lot of the dogs that we train um, live in the house with people. And they've got all kinds of bad manners. They got, they surf, surf counters and they pull you on the mm-hmm. leash and drag you. And their recall is half-hearted and... A lot of people don't feel comfortable with them, like a hundred percent off leash, just on, just with the Garmin, or or even, you know, even completely just no, no, no uh, e collar, no leash, just completely off. And it's rewarding when you get them back, when you get those people to come back and pick up their dog, and you spend time with them, and you show them all the things that the dog has learned. But then we begin the training of the people, because. Most of them have caused the problem <laughs> that the dog has. It's mm. and it's uh, it's not rocket science, but it's about it's being patient, repetitive, and communicating with that dog and learning to read his body language. And when he's had enough, being able to back up and say, "Okay, cool, you're you're confused in this scenario. Let's back up a step and regain your confidence, and then we'll go forward again." You know, mm-hmm. it, it really boils down a lot of times just to time. People are so busy with their day-to-day. They they get a bird dog. They love the dog. They want the dog in the house. It's part of their family. And then they're just so busy doing their thing that they're not giving the dog adequate time. It's not like it. if you start <laughs> if you start with a puppy 20 minutes a day, you know, by the time he's four or five months old, he's pretty smart. He's doing pretty much what you're asking him to do. Mm-hmm. But it's being consistent with that, with you. Sometimes um, having a dog in the home, it's it's hard if you do have multiple people trying to communicate to the dog, wife, kids, dad, and then, uh, you know, they're all sending different signals and the dog just kind of gets to the point like you made earlier. Um, I'm just going to tune you out because whatever that word that's coming out of your mouth means nothing to me. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to do what I do yeah. and you can be mad or happy. I don't care. So. Yeah. I uh it's a nice thing about having the dogs inside is that I used to have my dogs uh, outside. I used to have my dogs inside and I would get frustrated with how family members would, or, or friends would interact with them. Yeah. And it's very hard to, t- and not really, it's a losing battle to try to change right. that. I think sometimes, uh, yeah. 
but putting the dogs outside really change you know it uh limits the interactions that strangers and family members have with the dogs so that they come out and they still pet them up and stuff that's great right but they're not so much giving the dogs the mixed signals that i don't want them to give so right i've definitely noticed that it seems (laughs) like time is the number one component with the dog because you see if you, you see these homeless guys with their dogs, right. which have an off-leash heel, it's exactly. like it's in a canine obedience tournament, and they're, uh, they've put no formal training on the dog, but they've just, you know, they've put demands on that dog because it has real-world threats, you know. Right. It r- runs across the street to get to another dog, that car's, that dog's getting hit, you know. It sure. doesn't stay with, it, its home or, uh, with its owner, you know, that other meth guy is going to stab the dog or steal it <laughs> you know like it's sort of survival of the fittest but right it is funny when you've got you know someone with a bird dog which has no no recall they can't let it off leash yeah. and the homeless guy walks down the street walks, on, down, the walks street. down the highway with his dog's dog never had a collar on it yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> never even had an id collar yeah. yeah yeah i think you're right i think time it boils down to time some of it's knowledge some of it's you know those first 10 or t- so dogs that you train you you mess them up or you do things that are counterintuitive to what your end goal is. And then you have to look, figure out how to undo that and rebuild. And that makes, makes you a good dog trainer quick though. You know, when you, I remember I had a one. Yeah. My first couple of dogs as a young man, I, there was times they were looking at me going, what, what are we doing, man? Cause last week we were doing this and now this week we're doing the complete opposite. So, there's times when you, when you do something, I, it's it's often that most pointing dogs come here with uh, their owners teaching that dog to sit, and so anytime the dog gets confused or doesn't know what to do, or is trying to get a positive uh, reaction from you, they'll just sit down, you know. So that can be that can be uh, a bad scenario because as soon as you get that dog on a long line and you're trying to introduce him to birds. And he points a bird, and then he tries to take a few steps and jump in there, and he's re- resisted by the cord. He automatically just sits right down because he doesn't know. He's like, "Wait, am I doing what I'm supposed to do?" Am I? He gets confused, and in that moment, he'll just revert back to what's been positive in the past. Mm-hmm. And so you have all these bird dogs that are supposed to be standing up there looking like a million bucks, and they're all sitting down, on mm-hmm. <laughs> sit down on their butt, looking like a goofball. So mm-hmm. it's harder to clean out those corrupted files than to just start with a fresh slate. Exactly. You're better off to just do it right the first time yeah. yeah i i definitely know what you're talking about and the 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 best part of it is that you then have to live with that dog you've kind of screwed up right for however many years yeah and it really drives it home <laughs> and i think you have to internalize the lesson yeah uh so i got my first hound from you three years ago yeah. and i didn't have i d- is very much like way behind her in terms of learning how to hound hunt and I put a lot of obedience training on her because it was something I could do and I like being with dogs. And I've experienced a little bit of what you're talking in sort of, I I put, it would have been fine if she'd been getting on tons of game throughout right. that time. Sure. But to have two years, no game and lots of obedience training right. uh, and, and lots of time with me. So yesterday at the Bobcat Tree, she smoked the track and they ran, you know, it was only 700 yard track, but deep snow in the mountains uh and she's at the tree for about an hour and then she filters back and comes and finds me and she's better with bears and lions because they're you know bigger and stinkier right but i i've that's definitely been a an issue i've been trying to solve how do you 
how do you begin to remedy that? Right. Uh, it, it sounds like you're already on the right track with bears and lions. I, th- I I would suspect that if you caught 20 or 30 bobcats, that problem would take care of itself. It's hard. It's hard to. It's it's kind of hard to. A lot of a, a lot of the guys that I've trained with in the past have always joked it's easier to have a dog that's high strung and bring him down than it is to have a dog that's really kind of calm and quiet and try to build him up to be this crazy hunting fanatic. And so, you know, same scenario here. You've put a ton of obedience into her, a ton of time, a ton of connection, bond, and she's, you know, almost dependent on you in certain ways. And so to then have to try to teach her, okay, in this scenario, I don't want you to be dependent. I want you to be a wild, crazy Mm -hmm game chase an animal go and she's gonna do that she, her instincts are gonna kick in she's gonna override she's gonna go tree for an hour and then she's gonna kind of get bored and be like crap where's kyle mm-hmm. well i don't know maybe i should go find him maybe i should check on him you mm-hmm. know and so i again that's kind of what i was trying to make point with my few first towns was i i had too much of a handle on him and to get him to flip that switch to go do go all business and not worry about me was harder it was harder than if I would have really instilled the drive to go hunt mm. and then slowly added and, and, and added layered in the obedience. Mm-hmm. Or, so uh, it's a balancing mm-hmm. act. Yeah, it is totally. And just I, I imagine that you've gotten better at hound hunting, and so you're probably catching yeah. more game now. Yeah. And if you had been catching heaps of game in those early days, sure. it probably would have balanced it out. It probably right? would have been better. Yeah. Yep. So I've I've slacked up a little bit with the obedience demands, and hopefully as she you know sees more, I've noticed it definitely helps her to be around those wild gunning dogs. Yes. You know, like those dogs who are frothing at the mouth and biting at the tree. Right. It it certainly like lets her know, oh, I am supposed to be here. I don't need to think about my owner. Right. Right. Yeah. What I'm doing right now is okay. That's that's a positive. Mm. Yeah. You're right. I think if I if you were showing that you know. Any young dog, if you're showing him 20, 30 pieces of game in a month mm. and you're doing a ton of obedience at the same time, he's going to soon learn, hey, when we do this, when dad puts on the e-collar and we find a track, it's game on. It's We're not worried about heel and kennel and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But so if you did a solid year of just obedience and then try to turn that dog into a, you know, a, a go-getting, chase him down, catch everything they turn him out on, it's going to be really hard. <laughs> yeah. You have to it's going to take a lot of time to undo some of the stuff you've done. Yeah. It, it's it's a balance, right? And you just got to know where you're at on that sort of balancing yep. beam I think by watching the dog. Uh I think oftentimes houndsmen don't expect enough of their dogs as far as obedience and connection goes and I am I think and I've seen this with certain dog owners that like for instance, the guy I was out with this weekend. Sure. That you can ha- you can have those screaming, you know, game chasing fiends, and also have a really good handle on the dog. They're not they're not exclusive of each other. I've got two hounds right now are uh, from Montana, um, from a buddy of mine. They live in the house with him. There's no kennels. Uh, they have a couple of dog crates. They have a a wireless um, perimeter around their property. So when they but a lot of the dogs have learned that it's just that's where they hang, and they come down here and they're completely just wild. Go get them. Mm-hmm. But it take it took me about three or four months of hard hunting last year to unwind, 
to undo the obedience and the to, for them to realize, hey, we're here and it's game day. It's like it's go time. It's not we're not worried about anything else but catching that bear or mm -hmm. catching that lion. And it's it's all the gloves are off and go get them. So I had them last winter and I've got them back right now and they're just they're killing it, man. Mm -hmm. But they live in the house with you know mm -hmm. they sleep on his bed. They sleep at the end of his bed. Mm -hmm. They they have their own couch. I mean, they're like <laughs> just yeah. like just like people in that yeah. house. They get fed a couple times a day. Well, he'll he'll go to work and just leave them in the house. They're totally like just a complete pet. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's taken some ma major hunting down here to get them mm -hmm. to do both. But they're killing yeah. it right now. Yeah, well, nice. I think a lot of it is about signifiers to the dog. If you can tell the dog this is a different situation, like if that dog only gets in that dog box on the four-wheeler when it's going hunting and every time it l gets let out of that dog box, I've noticed with the GPS callers, uh, the more and more that they're exclusively have the GPS callers on while they're hunting, mm -hmm. they they know and they say, they oh, got that caller on, it's game time, yeah, you know? Okay. Time to begin the transformation from obedient mild mannered to right. frothing at the mouth my dogs are even my dogs today are they know when i pull over and i clean and we clean out because i'll pull over multiple times during the day and let dogs out air out clean out whatever um but some of the best houndsmen that i've hunted with have a routine mm. they go past the track or they do a certain they do certain way they have a routine and those dogs learn that routine and it's like yeah, you pull out the bag with the e-collars in it, and they're all going, heck, yeah, we're going to get back in the truck, and mm -hmm. we're going to go back down the road, and then we're going to go find a cat, you mm -hmm. know. And it's just having that routine, the dogs pick up on it really quick. And they're relatively simple creatures, so, like, the more concrete and consistent the, the signifiers are, you know, like, if you do the same thing, pull out the same bag, just put the collars on, you right. know, like, they, they really do seem to, to oh, put yeah. it all together. They know. They yeah. know. What's something that you've noticed that houndsmen could use for training? Uh, what do you mean? Uh, uh, a tool, technique, philosophy of dog training that you, you know, of your dog training that uh, you maybe see as lacking or just is a useful one, which a lot of people don't know. Um. I've got a couple hounds that just came in yesterday, and, and I'm going to work them for a gentleman. And the 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 Garmin tracking collar, the dogs are close to a year old, and they've never, you know, they've just barely had a tracker on them in the last couple of weeks. And so he's like, man, they they don't even. He's like, I put that on them, and they don't even know how to run with it. Like they're, it's it's inhibiting their movements, and and so just simple things like that. You know, mm -hmm. get the Garmin on them. You don't even have to turn it on. Get that, get the TT15 Mini or the 10 or 5 or whatever. Put it on them. Put a different collar on them. Just get them used to coming up and collaring up. It's super handy to call a dog by the name and have him come and sit in front of you. And you put the collar on him. And it's not a fight. It's not a tussle at the box. Just little things like that. Coming in and out of the box by name. Um, not opening the box and getting ramrodded. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some great podcasts out there. There's some great guys that are doing, that are talking about puppy work and and what to do in feeding time. I think there's a lot you could do with just with just that. You know, mm -hmm. having kibble, teaching a dog to recall instead of dumping it in a pan, hold it in your hand, mm -hmm. teach him to come to you. Simple little things like that. Those little things are gonna make 
when you're out there and you're excited and you're, and the dogs are excited and you've found a track and they know that it's game time now, it's going to make those those instances um, less confusing, mm-hmm. less less. Uh, what I want? What's the word I'm looking for? Um, chaotic. Mm-hmm. It's a frust- frustrating to me now to go hunting with somebody else, and when you want to leave a tree, you got to leash up all these dogs, or you got to leash them up to come out of the dog box because they're gonna bolt. Like you should be able to pull over and call up your dogs. Man, do that. Just do that. Just get to where you can call each dog out of the box and call them, and or. One of my favorite things to do is let them all out, and they're not gonna and they're not gonna run away. And then I call; they're all cleaning out, and I call one of them one by one, and they come over to me, and then I call them up. And just little routines like that are gonna make hunting a lot more enjoyable. You're not gonna be fidgeting with, "Oh crap, there goes the puppy! Now I gotta go chase him down the road." Mm-hmm. So, and yeah, and allow you to focus and do a good job, yeah. uh, and allow the dogs to focus. I think if they know, it it sounds like. Anything that you expect the dogs to do, and as, as an adult, you can begin preparing for them, begin pre- preparing them for, as as a puppy and throughout their life. You know, even if you don't want, I've heard some guys say, you know, they don't want their dog on a mean bear until it's two years old, so they don't start whatever, some you know something like that. You can still begin to build up to that, right. uh, like you're saying with the GPS collars. Like he didn't even have to be running the GPS, but he could have start putting them on when they're three months old, you know, and just right. taking them out for a walk. Yeah, yep. Getting the collars on them, get a leash on them. There's, there's not. What, what, why, why would leash training a hound be? I, I just don't understand why that would be a negative. For me, it's a positive. There's nothing more frustrating. You know, I hunt with a few people, and it's like. Hey, can you leash that dog up? And you leash him up, and it's like a rodeo to get him mm-hmm. tied back to the tree. It's like, whoa, man. <laughs> you know, it's a, so a little bit of work when that put dog was young would just make him a lot more, a lot more easy to handle and a lot easier to handle at a tree. Yeah, yeah. It's r- and and that rodeo can be dangerous for you on a mountain, dangerous for the dog. Oh yeah, I've ended up on my butt a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and if you broke your leg, like you're shit out of luck. Yeah, if you. If you are, we, you know, we sort of can get lazy. And if you've got a pack of dogs who are going to be wild animals on a leash, right. when you, you're going to be less likely to leash them up. And that could result in shooting a bear out of a tree or a bear right. comes down and hurts the dogs because that lack of leash. Eventually, you're going to need to put a dog on the leash, whether it's taken to the vet or something, right? Exactly. Yep. And it's when it's such a relatively easy thing to do to get it to a okay point, right. it would seem normal. Yeah, it's it's just those little things I think add up to the day, making the day more enjoyable. I had a young, I have a young pup that I'll be honest, I've been kind of lackadaisy. I haven't done my what I was supposed to do. She took off the other day, and it took me 20 minutes to catch her. And it's like, God dang it, I don't want to be spending my day trying to chase a six-month-old puppy down the road. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to be doing that. I want to be out here looking for tracks and being focused and not frustrated and mm-hmm. enjoy the day. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, having the 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 level of handle which allows you to enjoy it, I think it's sort of a positive feedback cycle where having that level of handle will allow you to be, you know, more emotionally balanced and a better handler, and right. you know it cascades in a sort of yeah. Yeah, I think and I think the dogs enjoy the day better too. They're not mm-hmm. getting yelled at. They're not getting in trouble all the time for being an idiot. Mm-hmm. They've figured it out quick. 
how is training a bird dog different from training a hound in a sort of uh you know 30 30,000 foot level obviously the practicalities of it are very different yeah i think we've touched on it a little bit um as far as as handle and the intimacy of a bird dog relationship when you drop the bird dog on the ground i w- i want to have him pattern between 30 and 100 yards and you know work with me i don't want to have to hack him a lot i don't want to be yelling at him a lot so I do a lot of long line work and create that habit. So when it's when it's hunting day and I slap the e-car on him, him and I are moving as a team. You know, thirty thousand foot view. I don't. I I want my hounds to handle, but I want them to be out there hunting and free casting and not, not necessarily checking in with me, or having to be within thirty to fifty yards. Mm-hmm. Some of the some nice hounds that I've hunted with are out there, five six hundred yards starting to track. You know. Mm-hmm. I'm always I'm always envious of the coon hunters that walk up and unsnap their lead and the dog makes a big old cast out there and then goes and finds a coon. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't really trained my personal hounds to do that. Do you think that's a training thing or do you think it's sort of mostly genetic? I think some of it's genetic. I think some of it's the terrain and the species they're hunting. But I think I think it would be fun to train It'd be fun to train a bear dog that you could walk up to a canyon and unclip him and just have him <laughs> shoot down to the bottom of that canyon and find uh, out if there's a bear track in yeah. there. Um, I don't know how I'm going to train for that, but I think there's probably some dogs that naturally cast out further. And if you're if you're taking a bird dog, um, you know, stance on that where you're putting a big handle and wanting him to range closer, you're going to inhibit his natural ability and kind of cut his legs out from under him, and then he's probably not going to range out there quite as far to start a track. Once the track's up and rolling, probably not going to make a big difference. But that's one thing I've noticed just looking back going, man, I wish I want to teach my dogs what, what's preferred game and what's trash, but I don't want to I don't want to cut them down so much that they're, they're really close working hounds. They're only leaving me 50 to 100 yards. Hmm. So it'd be, I think it, I think having a hound that could reach out there six, seven, eight hundred yards and start a track that you were confident with, mm-hmm. I think that'd be freaking awesome. That would be very cool. I think it'd be hard. It, I'm think, tr- thinking right You're now. You're going to have to have a mature dog. He's going to yeah. have to be mature enough and more of a finished type hound to do that. But right? you'll have had to let him do that. When yes. You, it's going to have involved some running some trash, right? Yeah. <laughs> you're, uh, it's going to be a ba- yeah, big yeah. balancing act. Yeah, that's a very cool idea. With the coons, I think it's sort of like the density of game. That dog learns by, you know, many positive interactions. <laughs> right. that Like, I go into this low creek here, and if I run a 500-yard circle here, I'm going to kick up a coon. Right. It's harder with the – It I is harder with big game. Maybe – maybe in something like off a bait where you've where you're running bears off a bait and that dog knows that within you know a 500 yard circle of that uh that bait he's likely to kick up a hot track i don't i don't know i wonder i I wonder if you couldn't transition take a young dog and start him on coon and then you know get get to where he catches 30 to 50 of them and then just transfer him over to you know you've, you've broke him off of deer and and possums and all that kind of stuff but Mm-hmm. I wish, I wish, yeah. The one thing with bird dog training is you can show a bird dog th- two or three hundred birds in a month pretty easy. You can't show a, you know, a, b- a big game lion hound three hundred lions in a month. <laughs> it's just not, mm-hmm. not, not gonna happen. Maybe in a lifetime. Yeah, you know, like it's right. a completely different scale. Right. Hopefully they're getting, you know, if that bird feels, if that dog feels, you know, 
one value point positive reinforcement when it kicks up a bird. Hopefully that lion dog's getting a hundred times that when it chases a lion. Uh, yeah. But no, that's that's you, the tough. You thing. could make a heck of a heck of a pack of hounds if you could show them a hundred pieces of a game in a month. Mm -hmm. So, just not real typical with a new houndsman or even somebody unless you're hunting every day all day and yeah, in in a place that has a lot of game. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's days when we go without cutting a track. I mean, it just happens, you know. So yeah, yeah, it, and then you get in those scenarios where you're catching two, three bears a day, and I think even a week like that really exponentially seems to turn them on. Sure it does. What What are traits that you look, you particularly want in a hound? I've been a little bit picky because I want a hound that can cold trail a line in the dirt and then pick his head up and chase a bear. And if I, you know, if I want to go chase some bobcats, I want a dog that has the ability to do that. So I've kind of been pretty my standards have been pretty high um i've soon learned that there are definitely dogs that are better at some dogs are better lion dogs it's really hard to find a dog that can do bear lion and bobcat and do them all seamlessly mm. that's that's it's very hard to find that one you know that dog so i've tried i've tried to stick with that but the I've come to realize that that's why you have a pack of hounds, typically four or five hounds, that one has a certain strengths, other one has a weakness, and those strengths and weaknesses can be absorbed through the pack. Do you need? To it would be really cool, sorry. though. Go ahead. Do you need to keep them completely separate? Like, I, I know a guy who's got a pack of bear dogs and a pack of dry ground. Well, they're not dry ground. A pack of lion dogs, he runs on both dry ground and some snow. Yeah. And his philosophy is sort of, oh, it's, you know... I think it's a luxury of just having a lot of dogs, but ca can you can you have a set of dogs where okay, so and so runs bears best, and so and so is a dry ground lion dog, and so and so likes bobcats on snow, but you can equally run them all on on the same thing, or do you have to keep them separate? Um, I could see some advantages of having a pack. If you were an outfitter, having a pack of just straight lion dogs and straight bear dogs. The first few lions I catch every year coming off a bear, it's a train wreck because you're trying to get dogs to slow down and do do methodical work. Um, I I did hunt with a guy up in Oregon. His name's Bryce, and you know he his his floss he he wanted the same thing. He wanted uh, dogs that could do bear, lion, and bobcat. And so when I talked to him, I was like, man, you're you're speaking my language. You're you're hunting dogs that can do that. Yeah, come up. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay. So I got in the truck and drove up there and hunted with him for five days and watched his dogs chase a lion one day, chase a bobcat one day, chase a bear one day, mm -hmm. um, chase a coon one night. I mean, so I had to go see that to believe that it was true because I had, there is kind of a, a premise out there, you know, to have good bear dogs, you run them just on bear, or good lion dogs, you just do lion. I don't know. I think for the hobby guy, you got to have a dog that can do at least two out of three. I, I if if you're gonna be a, a hardcore outfitter, yeah, I could see definitely having a benefit of having a pack of dogs that only just did lion. But for me, I mean, I've outfitted for the last three or four years, five years, guided. It's really nice to have dogs that can chase a lion one day and flip the switch and chase a bear the next. Mm -hmm. But dogs that are four, five, six years old, and they've 
caught 20, 30 lions in a season and they catch 15, 20 bears in a season. It doesn't take too many seasons of that, and they they click really fast. Mm-hmm. Hit that first hot bear rig, and it's like game on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so even yeah, uh, there's probably some credit to the idea that the specialists you know do it very well. But I got to think that if you're if okay, I just keep these dogs as lion dogs, and we catch you know twenty lions a year, thirty lions a year, whatever it is. Right. If you Okay, maybe it would confuse them a little bit. If you get them on bears, they start running hotter. But if you just added 30, 40 bears in that year as well, right. it just seems like more game, more hunting, more trailing. But I, I, I'd, I'd sort of rather have dogs which will I can hunt year-round and hunt a lot of things hunt a lot of game. than, you know, them be perfect at one thing. Yeah. I, I've i got a friend that has lion hounds, and he trained, a, he trained those up to about five or six. Most of his dogs were between five and seven, and all they'd ever done is caught lion. And to switch them, those dogs back to bear was hard. And they'd, they'd run it, but they didn't run it at the same intensity level that my dogs would. And so if you take a young dog and teach him both, and he has the physical capabilities to do both, because there's some, there's some lion dogs that are slow, methodical, big, heavy, mm-hmm. bone. They're not going to be track star on a bear race, you know, in 70-degree, 80-degree weather. They're just not going to keep up because mm. they don't have the physical capabilities to do that. So genetics is huge, you know. Genetics yeah. goes back to can my dog physically outrun run down a bear and then turn around and slow down and cold track a lion. Mm-hmm. Not all dogs have that physical capability. So, you know, uh, this last year I think he took four or five dogs and just started them on bear and they're kicking butt. But those dogs will know bear and lion from day one. Mm-hmm. They'll know both instead of just strictly one. It's a lot to ask from a dog, but the more I ask from dogs, the more they fulfill what I'm asking and show me sure. that it's reasonable. You know, uh, whether it's putting them in a crate and expecting them not to piss or shit for eight hours <laughs> or, or, you know, sort of hunting stuff, yeah. uh, I think we can. They are amazing creatures and yeah. we can ask a lot from them sure. sort of the question is figuring out how much uh was that was that friend you have in montana no he actually lives here in town oh really because i imagine that that's a problem that a number of people are or problem circumstances yeah. that people are encountering in montana now that they've got this bear season right they've got all these lion dogs you know finnish lion dogs right. and it would be very interesting to know how that's progressing yeah it will be it would be hard to take a, a finished lion hound and turn him on a bear and be like have him become a rock star. It would be, I think it would be hard. Mm-hmm. There's probably some dogs out there that'll do it, but not the majority probably won't. If it's a snow dog, at least it may not have been broken off bears. But if you're running that do- that dog on lions year round, right. at some point, presumably you've broken it off bears. Sure, sure. Especially if you're just yeah. Especially if you can't even catch. Especially if you can't even chase bears, like in Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, what? So, is is that guy in Oregon the guy you started your dog? Started yeah, your some of the stuff I got myself was in Oregon. Yep. So, just for sorry for the listeners, but for personal reasons, I want to know what because I my hound dog is from Jared. Uh, yeah. What What is the breeding on those dogs? Mostly, it's a Smoky River bloodlines. Mm-hmm. Goes back to a Blue Diamond Jib dog. Um. And then there's a little bit of Cameron in there, and a little bit of Utchman. Mm-hmm. But I think most of it's the Smoky River stuff. And Bryce Bryce had papers on a lot of his dogs. A lot of his stuff comes back from North Carolina and those guys out there that are running bear. And so 
he was looking for the grit, the feet, the speed. He wanted a little faster dog, mm-hmm. a little more agile, a little more. He he grew up running and tr- and tr- and hunting with his grandfather and father, the Finley River dogs. But he on day three, four, five, the the pads on those dogs were were toast, and he got super frustrated with that. So. Mm-hmm. That's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> mm-hmm. Are you are you mostly running blue dogs? Yeah, I'm mostly running blue dogs now. I have a few Walker dogs um, that have a lot of running dog in them. Did you start with Walkers? Is that why? Or I started with all kinds of stuff. Oh really? Yeah, I started mostly with Walkers, and my wife, after I was into it for about a year, she looked at me one day and she finally said, I, "We were sitting right here on the porch," and she says, "Why are you, why are you fiddling with all this?" basically uh classified ad type dog she's like why don't you just go buy a really nice hound mm-hmm. and i was like okay but and that's when i found bryce and that's when we got josie and then it was like game on mm-hmm. then we started catching bears then we started catching lions it was a lot more fun and and is the foundation of your breeding in those dogs yeah so bill and yeller are two the two dogs that we have that we've bred in the last two or three years and then we've kept some of their offspring, and we've sent some of their offspring all over the country. Um, they're they're doing great. Mm-hmm. The, the thing I would say about my dog I've gotten from Jared is that she's small. She's about oh mid thirties, maybe maybe high thirty pounds. Yeah. Super quick, super fast. Just moves beautifully. No weight on her. You know, just th- sort of floats over the ground and. Uh, it seem you know it's hard to separate from my my uh mistakes <laughs> uh raising her but she's got an excellent personality and is i think hard hunting and is going to do really well uh but i would say they're remarkably athletic she's the fastest dog over i've hunted with i guess a hundred other dogs now and yeah. she's the fastest dog over any sort of distance that I've seen. Right. Yeah, I think one of the best dogs I own weighs about 30 pounds, and she's 10 years old now, and she's just she's just barely starting to slow down. Mm-hmm. Quick, fast, doesn't ever get hurt, hardly. Just They're tough, too. They are tough as nails. Yeah. They are. They're little, and you think, oh, they're little, they're going to be fragile, but they're so tough, it's really impressive. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun, mm-hmm. a ton of fun. So what what's your philosophy on breeding like do you take the best to the best with your dogs or are you looking to combine similar traits or like balance out bad traits with good ones yeah in the bird dog world the the papers and the genetics have been such a big thing that's then that's bled over to the hound world i wanted something that was papered so i could at least look at it on paper and 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 try and do some family breeding line breeding um in in this scenario, you know, we've done a little bit of that. Yeller and, and Bell are both pretty close, uh, kind of a family-type bred dog. But we've only bred two or three litters, just enough to have fun and keep things rolling. Um, I'm not going to say I'm an expert hound breeder in any way, shape, or form. I make a living breeding and training bird dogs, but it's been fun to carry some of that over to the hound world. I've had a lot of conversations with guys that are breeding best of best and and doing the best they can 
and a lot of them say well how do you know how do your hounds you have a litter of hound pups how do that how does that compare to your bird dog pups unfortunately it just doesn't uh the bird dogs i can have eight of them and six out of the eight are going to be above average and two of them are going to be rock stars i have eight hound pups and there's one or two in there that are below average and the rest are are above average and doing well mm. but I, yeah i don't know I, I don't think i don't know why that is partly i believe that the bird dog people have kept such scrutinized um, records all the way back to germany you know you could trace a lot of our dogs back to germany and and man those guys were hardcore the germans were just like if it didn't make the cut you called it dog nazis they were they were so yeah. strict man yeah. and uh you, kudos to them and kudos to the guys that i got my bird dogs from you know leo and in, in idaho had put 50 years of his life into breeding you know steve reese in in iowa another 20 years uh um, the gentleman that does Dixieland Rusty down in Texas, oh, his name leaves my mind. But yeah, I was able to take my bird dogs, and those guys have been uh, the bird dogs I that I breed today have seventy years of intentional breeding behind them. That I don't have a hound out in my kennel that's got that many years. Is there guys out there that are doing it? I'm sure there is. Mm -hmm. I, I've heard through the podcast. I mean, you got some generational guys. You know, my great grandfather, my great my grandfather, my me, and now they're forty, fifty years into it. They've got something, you know, something special. Mm -hmm. Tends to be probably more back east. It yeah, sounds like it does. But just that's sort of just tribute to the fact that the West is is younger. And yeah. I think in a hundred years, hopefully, if we still got hound hunting, right. it would be the case here. I do wonder if maybe the inconsistency, which I've heard a lot about, inconsistency in litters, yeah. is uh, is a factor of the we there's a lot of uh breed mixing and sort of just sure. mixed up dogs in western big game dogs i think because it adds a lot of hybrid vigor when you mix dogs mm -hmm. the downside to it is you get less consistent breedings you know you look at some of these really line bred even you know you take it too far you go really inbred right. and it works for a little while and then you start you know but you're having huge physical uh consistency between the right. between the litter and also much greater consistency of personality and temperament and i i do wonder if maybe in order to get that consistency there needs to be more tracking like you're talking about right and a little bit uh yeah lots I, of balances I think, I think those guys that have written it down and tried really hard have come out with a better product at the end of the day Unfortunately, some of them got too inbred and to the point where the only time they had magic was when they took their line-bred dog and crossed it. And then all of a sudden, they got some more vigor. They got what they were after. Mm. The problem with that is then you don't really have a pro. The best dogs, the, some of the the bird dogs are to the point now where I can have a litter of eight puppies, tell you to close your eyes, pick one. Mm. You're going to have a rock star. And it's probably going to do, I can almost tell you it's going to do this, 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 and this. It's going to be easy to potty train. It's going to be easy in your house. It's going to have an off switch. It's going to be good with your kids. It's going to have natural instinct to point, natural instinct to retrieve. You know, I can sit there and make a list of almost what, because I've got so much intentional breeding in these three bloodlines that we're weaving. It's pretty concentrated, man. It's pretty potent stuff. Mm -hmm. and it's, But it's for a certain demographic of, of hunting that we're after, right? Mm -hmm. And like you're saying, you've got uh, a lot of guys out here in the West that are, 
breeding blue ticks to walkers to running dogs to training dogs just trying to come up with the best thing they could mm-hmm. um so it's a yeah. quick fix i think i think you know your walkers got bad feet like mix it with a blue tick and maybe right. uh and and it does work but you do it too much, like any quick fix, and eventually you start, it becomes a little bit unpredictable, it sounds like. Yeah, it, it, well, it is unpredictable. You get a litter of eight, and you hope you get two good ones, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. three. So, yeah, I think there's been a little more predictability with our blue dogs just because I was able to get some fa- some dogs that were already related, already had that blue diamond gym kind of stuff, and just try to line those up. Mm-hmm. But not, I, not, there's a lot, there's a long way to go there still. Mm-hmm. I'm excited though. I've got some pups out of Bell, and uh, now we're going to bring in another stud and breed those those pups to that stud, and then bring some of those pups back onto Bell's line and just kind of keep weaving them. Mm-hmm. You know, Bell's a Bell's one of my m- most well-rounded dogs because I can put her on a dirt track in a line. She can rig a bear. She'll chase a bear. She'll tree hard. Is she the fastest dog in my pack? No. But an overall, well-rounded dog, she could do just about anything. It's awesome. And I breed her to the right stud, and I get a little more zip and a little more go and a little more mm-hmm. hard, you know, hard tack driving. And then if I can just keep weaving that, it'll, you know, hopefully we'll have something really neat. Mm-hmm. When you got it, do you, would you focus on, oh, I've got this dog which has these excellent traits. I'm going to breed it to another dog which has those same excellent traits. You know, this dog tree is really hard. I want its... You know, I want to breed it to another dog that trees really hard. Or this dog doesn't tree at all. I'm going to breed it to, you know, sort of as a, comp- do, you, do you aim to line up the positives to amplify that or balance out the negatives by, you know, this dog doesn't really tree, so I'm going to add a dog which trees really hard. Yeah, I, th- I think I would be even a couple of steps higher in the fact that um, I want to keep it in a family. I'm going to look for, uh, so like if I'm going to breed Bell's pups, I'm going to look for a stud dog that has similar genetics but does check all the boxes. I'm just not, I, I would breed to a dog that doesn't tree, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't breed, so I'm going to, and, and and I think in the past that's what we've done is, oh, this dog's lacking tree or this dog's foot's bad or whatever. So you're trying to fill the holes, right? Mm-hmm. But there are enough guys out there that have bred long enough to, I think the, the holes are very few. And then you want, those are the kind of guys you're going to want to, you mm. know, got to get in the truck and drive to freaking North Carolina or Kentucky or Wisconsin or whatever it is to make that happen. It's going to be well worth it, right? Because yeah. I'm going to be 5, 10, 15, 20 years ahead than just me sitting out here by myself trying to whittle this all together. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't think the bar's pretty high. I don't think I would treat, try to breed to a dog that wouldn't check a lot of the boxes yeah they're out they're out there i think they're out there we yeah. just got to find them just being more selective very l- like the germans you're talking about and it's uh a- as a consequence of the other very in- interconnected world where we've got social media we've got yeah. the internet like a one positive is that is that it doesn't have to be you know you breeding your hound to the only other guys hounds in town right. like you that we have the ability to go out and look for something to make better pairings so that's that's cool well here's an example in the bird dog world if you have a fantastic stud dog you're promoting him right you're trying to promote and improve whereas out here in the west if you're an outfitter and you have a heck of a really nice hound you don't want anybody to have that blood because you then you're then you're competing against him to to catch game 
And so it's a little different philosophy. I, I, I feel like when I first started to get into hounds, it's like, we don't want you to have any of our stuff. Mm. And so it's like, well, wait a minute. In the bird dog world, if you have the best producing stud and he lives in Iowa, you go get semen from him or you drive out there and get a, a bitch bred to him, you know, that's what you do. Mm-hmm. In the hound dog world, it was like, don't tell anybody that that dog is a rock star. <laughs> We're utilizing him for our business. To, um, But I do feel like that wall's come down a little bit, like you're saying. Now with the internet, podcasts, all of a sudden these houndsman stories are being told. And it's like, heck yeah, that's really neat to know that there's a third generation houndsman in podunk nowhere that is on this podcast. And maybe I can get him his phone number or get on Facebook and find him and mm-hmm. reach out to him and say, hey, I'd like to breed that kind of dog to mine. I think that's going to help bridge the gap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the competitive the competitive infighting, I don't think, is good. You know, uh, the competition competition breeds excellence, but that competition in hound hunting is between the dogs and the track and the animal. I don't think it should be between other hound hunters. And yeah. cooperation in the in the realm of hound hunters, I think, is. And, and as we were talking about earlier, was sort of the future of hound hunting probably being monitored. You don't, you know, it's like there's going to be limits as. You know, there's more and more people. Uh, and hopefully it will take it, we'll get to a balanced medium point where there's opportunity, but you're not in really tooth and nail competition with people. And that will allow sort of more of that cooperation. Yeah, and and, I, and you, you got to respect those guys that have built a living on their hounds and make a living with their hounds. I, I get that they don't want everybody, they don't want to fight everybody, you know. The, the, if they've got a special thing with their dogs and they want to keep that, that's that's awesome. But there's some of us out here that are just recreating and doing it for fun, and you know we're not interested in starting an outfitting business and competing with you next week. But you know, Michael Jordan's not afraid of teaching other people how to play basketball, and I do think that the guys I've met who are sort of the most tooth and nail, it's because of their own insecurities as far as their ability to, you know, like. The Michael Jordans of hound hunting, I don't think they give a shit about, <laughs> you know, because they're going to catch and they know what to do. Yeah. Uh, they've, they've, they excel at what they're doing and they, they don't have to be threatened by, you know, selling some guy a, a pup. Right. I think I, I, I'm hoping that that's starting to change. I think you're right. What do you, what is, what's something that you think houndsmen are doing particularly well, whether it's sort of in the training and interaction with the dogs or in the interaction with the game that people in other elements of the dog world, whether it's the bird dog world or obedience or, or even pet ownership could learn. I think there's a lot that pet owners could learn from, from, uh, yeah. Working dogs. One, one trait that seems to resonate through the houndsmen. Um, they, they do, they, they do love what they do. They love their, a, a majority of the houndsmen love their dogs. They love what they're doing. They're super passionate about it to the point where some of these guys have 20, 30 hounds, you know, and it's, they don't hunt deer. They don't hunt. They don't go fishing. They don't, they don't hunt deer. They don't hunt elk. They don't, they just hound hunt. That's all they do, you know, and um, tradition, I think tradition and, and wanting to pass that down, pass that on. I feel like when the chips are down, uh, I think most of the houndsmen that I have friends are friends with right now. If I called them and I was in need, they would come and mm-hmm. help. Whether it's hey my house burned down or hey 
I'm in a bind, you know, uh, I need a dog or whatever it is. I think those, those guys are, they're pretty, they're really good people, mm-hmm. really good people. And they have good values and good, um, good judgment. What do you well, think that is? Do, why do you I think don't, people? I don't know. Is it a result it takes, of spending dude, it time takes with a dogs? lot to freaking go up there and unhook a hound and take him up into eight thousand feet and mm-hmm. hit the snow like you did yesterday and grind up in there and find a track and hike to a hound tree and dude, hounds would have to be almost semi nuts to go do mm-hmm. the, some of the crap that they do. I mean, go into the swamps and get a dog or it's you know you're up till five. Sometimes you're up all night just trying to get your dogs home. So there's just there's an element of of um, of drive and passion and and willing to do whatever it takes to to get their dogs or get the game caught or to be successful. Mm-hmm. I mean, it it takes a lot. And taking care of something else, I think, it gives you a little bit of perspective on things that you can you can bring to relationships with humans. You know, when I'm out mule deer hunting i'm i'm cold oh i'm hungry but when i'm out dog hunting i'm thinking you know i've got a couple dogs that i need to be taking care of and and directing and i think that that helps you deal with the the little bit of suffering that we bring on ourselves as part of this fun you know in a good way yeah and at the end of the day you know you get home from a hunt you still got to feed and water the dogs and take care of them and bed them and Make sure everybody's not cut up or banged up too bad, and there's just an element of uh, of care there that's, you know, if you're done mule deer hunting, you jump in the truck, throw the gun in the back seat, and go home. There's nothing to take care of once you're mm-hmm. once you're home. So and it's year round. It doesn't doesn't <laughs> stop when hunting season ends, as you know. Uh. I agree. Yeah, it's a it's a lifestyle. Yeah, I think that's been brought forward more in the last few years. And that's a positive lifestyle. I think there's a lot of good things that can be learned. It It's l- like any, it's a tight community, I think, in that it's just the numbers are low uh, sure. r- compared to many other things. Uh, and it's it can be a social activity as well. You can do it with other people. You can bring your family. And I think there's some element of self-censoring that the community does where which is uh, how any healthy community operates which is like if this guy's a scumbag which there are more than their fair share in the hound hunting community you know you you only fucked me over once before i know and then you know i tell my friend that you know always thinking about buying a dog i wouldn't if i was you you know and and i do think that that's a, a healthy mode of operating as a community which Sometimes hound, the hound hunting community can be sort of closed to outsiders, and I think that it's part of why is because they're 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 trying to retain. You, you know, it takes a little while to earn people's trust, but when you do, sure. you know that that person's a good person. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think there's a lot of good a lot of good qualities in the hound world. There's a few bad apples that do goofy things, but I think overall, I think they're they're trying to preserve a way of life and pass it on it does attract some some wacky <laughs> folks as well uh, yeah how are you doing on time bud i gotta i gotta go to a concert for my son that was perfect sorry to no you're good i should have asked no, you before you even good. started you're good i hope you enjoyed the interview i'm in the yard at my family's house in ketchum idaho 
there's some construction going on. Jared and I talked about wildlife management in Utah. Though questions of harvests and seasons differ by place, one thing is clear across the West. Habitat loss in the face of human development is our primary challenge. Even in the few years I've lived in Idaho, houses have spread further and further up every valley, sucking water and clearing land. People need homes and, I believe, deserve an expansive life. I grew up in England, a country the size of Alabama, but with a population one-sixth of that of the entire United States. I left England partially in order to have an expansive life. England's population grew from 1 million to 56 million over the course of the last thousand years. What nature remains is only the memory of wildness. This is not an inevitable future in the United States. Population growth here has likely peaked with a rate of only 0.3% growth predicted over the next 30 years, and two-thirds of adults already own their own homes. I'm hopeful for nature in the Western world, with an end to population growth and the continual development of technology and our outlook. But in the present, the question is, why are houses replacing habitat? I want to immediately refute the current environmentalist position that a consumptive relationship with nature is the problem, that the only viable relationship is a preservationist one. There's still enough land remaining for the relative few who desire to, to live as inhabitants, to cut wood, grow gardens, and hunt for meat. A consumptive relationship with nature is not optional. Whether you live in a city, a suburb, or a swamp, the only question is how you consume. Sustainable, and more than that, positive consumption is possible when you live in connection to the natural world. Seems obvious to us, but much of the anti-hunting and environmentalist rhetoric is founded on the fallacy that because some consumption is bad, all consumption is bad. And so, the loss of habitat. There are two reasons for it. One, like me, people are moving from the rest of the U.S. to the West. There's no changing that. And although it may be hard to stomach once you live in a place, I think it is good. The second reason, conspicuous here in the ski town of Ketchum, is greed. Widespread and unprecedented greed in which more and more people are possessing more and more of everything. Greed has become increasingly democratized and now it's not just the Rockefellers that have more. Home ownership rates have barely changed from 1960 to now but there are more and more houses. In Ketchum, at least, there are houses, not homes. Second, third, fourth, and fifth houses. You cannot have inhabitants in uninhabited homes. The question remains, as Tolstoy asked it, how much land does a man need? The answer is simple enough. Enough that helps and not enough to hinder. In other words, as much as you can cut, try again. The question remains, as Tolstoy asked it, how much land does a man need? The answer is simple, enough that helps and not enough to hinder. In other words, as much as you can go around in a day. In places where nature remains, Conspicuous greed stands in stark contrast to the natural world. 
Over the past few years, I've been sick and living in my family's second house, myself a beneficiary of overconsumption. Over the winter, the starving deer and elk gnawed the bark off the apple trees, pushed off the mountains by snow, and huddling in what little remains of the valley floor not cleared for empty houses the size of hotels. Greed, the convenient line goes, is in the eye of the beholder, or who are you to say to me and vice versa? Rightly so, and like spotting a lion track amidst the dust of cows and coyotes, you know it when you see it. Nature doesn't care for relativist arguments. When she's knocked off her perch, the deer starve on bark, the elk eat poisoned yew, and the lions come into town for fish and game to kill.